Well, our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 12. We will be looking this morning at verses 15 to 21. Again, Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. We're picking up uh, where we left off last week. This is God's word. Hear it. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we turn to your word this morning, we ask, Lord, for the illuminating power of your spirit. We thank you, dear Lord, for the gift of your spirit. We thank you that he lives in our hearts. And we pray now that he would illumine our minds. Teach us, O Lord, what it means that Christ Jesus is a servant who is gentle and lowly. Teach us what it means, O Lord, that he will not bruise, that he will not break a bruised reed, that he will not quench a smoldering wick. And help us, O Lord, with this knowledge to rejoice in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in our passage this morning, it's a, it's a, a little bit of a departure from what we've been seeing in recent weeks. There's very little action that takes place here. Jesus, knowing that the, the Pharisees were conspiring to destroy him, he withdrew. He withdrew from the area where they were. And when he left, Matthew tells us that many people followed him. And verse 15 says that he healed them all. Now we have to step back just a little bit and see what has gone on, what has taken place just prior to our passage this morning to understand what Matthew is is about here, what he's trying to point out here. So I ask you just to look back at verse 14. We talked about this a little bit last week. Verse 14 marks the place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus was firmly set on the pathway to the cross. Verse 14 says that that the Pharisees conspired together about how to destroy Jesus. The Pharisees were looking for a way to destroy him. Now in truth, Jesus had been on this path his whole life. He had been on this path since the day he was born. Indeed, he had been on this path since it had been ordained before the foundations of the world that he would come as the Savior of his people. And now the leaders of his people, the, very, the leaders of those people who he came to save, they were set against him. And they were looking for a way to destroy him. So how does Jesus mark this moment? How does he mark this momentum time in his ministry? Well, Matthew tells us he goes on and does exactly what he's been doing. He heals people. And we can presume that he's continuing to preach and to teach as well. 
Jesus marks this moment by doing exactly what he's been doing his entire public ministry. But Matthew marks this moment in a different way. Matthew marks this moment by quoting from Isaiah 42, and it's an extensive quote. This quotation is the seventh of ten Old Testament quotations that Matthew uh, makes in his gospel. And it is the longest of the ten. And Jim Boyce in his commentary on Matthew says that this quotation serves as a summary of who Jesus is and of all that he did while he was ministering on earth. Matthew, at this decisive moment in Jesus' ministry, wants to remind his readers of who all the Old Testament prophets say Jesus is. He wants us to take a, a moment here. He gives us a break in the action, and he wants us to reflect about who Jesus is. Jesus, Matthew says, is the Messiah. And he wants to remind his people of, who, of what Jesus came to do. It's something that Matthew tells us very early in this gospel. In chapter 1, he tells us that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Matthew's language here is very deliberate. The Pharisees want to destroy Jesus, he says in verse 14, but Jesus does not answer their violent intentions with his own violence. Jesus is the gentle Messiah, Matthew says. Jesus is the Messiah who does not crush a bruised reed. He does not quench the smoldering wick. And so I'd ask you now to think on this as we work our way through this verses. Jesus Christ was broken and crushed so that bruised sinners like you and me who believe in Christ can be saved from our sins. Jesus Christ was broken and crushed so that bruised sinners like you and me who believe in him can be saved from our sin. Well, I've divided this passage up into three sections, not necessarily tied to particular verses. The first section is a generous God. The second section is a gentle servant. And the third section is the Gentile's hope. A generous God, a gentle servant, and the Gentile's hope. So let's look first at a generous God. We see that Jesus has withdrawn. Jesus went away from the area where he had encountered the Pharisees. He went away from the tabernacle. But a great crowd of people followed him. And Matthew says he healed everyone who was afflicted, everyone who was infirmed. But verse 16 says that instead of Jesus seeking promotion for himself, instead of Jesus saying, go and tell everybody what you've seen, what you've heard, and what has been done, what does Jesus do here? He instead says, tell no one. He says to everyone who was there, everyone who witnessed the events, everyone who received the benefits of his healing, he said, don't tell anyone about this. And this, Matthew says, in verse 17, was to fulfill what was spoken by the the prophet Isaiah. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. This quotation from Isaiah is the first of what is known as the servant songs. And you see four of these, maybe five of these, from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55. This grand, great, beautiful section of Isaiah that talks about the coming of the suffering servant. Now Matthew had already quoted from the chief servant song in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. That chief servant song, Isaiah 53. He quoted from verse 4 there, which says, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. 
And as we look at Matthew's quotation from Isaiah, we learn some very important facts about God. But before we, before we uh, consider those facts, I want you to, to think about this. That If you were to lay out uh, these verses from Matthew side by side by the passage in Isaiah, you'd see some differences there. You'd see that it's not an exact identical quotation from Isaiah. Well, why is that? Well, it's not because I, uh, Matthew was quoting from the Septuagint as opposed to the Hebrew. Oftentimes when New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they use the Greek version of the Old Testament. And there are differences between the Greek version and the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. Well, that's not the case here. Matthew here is, is giving an inspired interpretation of this passage from Isaiah. Matthew, who's being guided, who's being directed, who's being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is interpreting this passage in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ. He's doing what Jesus taught the disciples to do in Luke chapter 24. You remember that passage in, in Luke 24, what is it, verse 48, where Jesus takes his disciples through the Old Testament. He takes them through the law, through the prophets. And he says, all of these were written about me. And so Matthew, knowing that all of the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ, he interprets this passage in that way. Now, this shouldn't make you uncomfortable. This shouldn't make you uh, nervous about what is being done with the Old Testament here. Matthew is an inspired apostle of Jesus Christ. He does this with the full authority of the Holy Spirit. And he does it because the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Well, as I was saying, as we look at Matthew's quotation from Isaiah, we learn some very important things about God himself. Verse 18 says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. He's wanting us to look at this servant. He says, Behold, look at Jesus. Behold him with your eyes. Fix your minds upon him. Jesus Christ is right here, he's saying. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son. We've talked about this before. Jesus Christ wasn't uh, just born out of nothing on that first Christmas day, was he? He existed. He is co-eternal with God. He existed side by side with him from all eternity. He was present with God at creation. John chapter 1 tells us this, that all things were made through him. He was not simply uh, created uh, for the first time in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is the eternal son. And he is also the father's chosen servant. We also learn that the father is very pleased with him. Well, verse 18 continues, I will put my spirit upon him. Meaning he will be anointed by the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what took place at Jesus' baptism back in chapter 2. Now, why does the father do this? At the end of verse 18, he says that he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Why does the Father say, behold my servant, my chosen servant? Why does he say that he will anoint him? It is because he's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ is God's anointed. And that's what the word Messiah means. The anointed. And he was chosen for the purpose of of going out among the Gentiles. Now we'll talk more about this later. But now it is sufficient to see that God's mission to the Gentiles was never an afterthought. 
It runs throughout the Old Testament. It's not something that was simply invented uh, at the time of the New Testament. It didn't just happen at Pentecost. It's been God's plan through all the ages to bring salvation to the nations. As you read this verse, as you went through this first verse of this servant song, verse 18, were you reminded of something earlier that we, we, we saw earlier in Matthew's gospel? Were you reminded of Matthew's uh, uh, account of Jesus' baptism? Well, think about it. Even though John did not want to baptize uh, Jesus, even though he said, I am unworthy uh, to tie your sandals, he did baptize Jesus. Jesus said it was fitting for him to do so because it fulfilled all righteousness. And right after Jesus was baptized, you see, the, you get this picture of the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, and he rests on Jesus. This is that anointing. And as the, the Spirit descends, the voice of the Father from heaven says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now Matthew t- makes it clear to us, he makes it clear to us that all of the events that surround Jesus' baptism fulfilled this prophecy in Isaiah 42. Jesus did everything the Father asked of him. Jesus, who had been there at his Father's side for all eternity, coexistent with the Father and the Spirit, was now absent from him. His presence was on the earth. He had taken on a bodily, a human nature. He lived as a human being. And while he was absent from his father in the heavenly realm, Luke, 20, uh, excuse me, Luke 2 verse 52 says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. God continued to look upon his son. And his favor grew. He was well pleased with what his son Jesus Christ was doing on the earth. God's love for his son only increased during his lifetime. And so, even though Jesus is eternal with God, even though he is equal with God, Jesus was the true servant of the Father. And for those who have been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ, this is good news. Because we are certainly not pleasing to God in the way that Jesus was. We are seldom obedient to our Heavenly Father. But Jesus obeyed the will of the Father in every way. Jesus was perfectly obedient. And this perfect obedience of Jesus Christ is credited to you and me. It's credited to everyone who believes in him. And so, all of those who are in Christ Jesus, as God the Father looks down on us, he sees his Son. And he embraces us as his children. God is so generous here. That he has given his son to die. And he's given all of those benefits of being a son to those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look now at a gentle servant. A gentle servant. Even though Jesus knew that the Pharisees had begun plotting a way to kill him, he didn't fight back. Jesus did not try to retaliate. He knew what they were doing. But he did not try to avert what they were trying to do. He withdrew from them. He turned the other cheek. He was a gentle servant. Verse 19 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, 
Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Undoubtedly, Matthew sees Jesus' unwillingness to fight against the plans of the Pharisees as a fulfillment of this verse. We're to see this. Jesus did not fight. Well, the further fulfillment uh, is Jesus' unwillingness to engage in self-promotion. Verse 16 says that Jesus ordered everyone who was following him not to make him known. Now, this wasn't the first time that Matthew has said, uh, had mentioned Jesus' desire uh, for those he'd healed to keep quiet. Most recently, in chapter 9, verse 30, after Jesus healed the two blind men, Matthew says there, Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Jesus had no desire to generate hype about himself. This goes very much against the grain of our culture. Where everything is about generating buzz about yourself. You've got to promote yourself. You've got to do everything you can to make yourself look good in the eyes of others. Our culture is all about shameless self-promotion. But self-promotion is not unique to our culture alone. It's not unique to this age alone. It is a natural tendency of a sinful heart. Shameless self-promotion was something that people engaged in in Jesus' day. You remember Jesus condemned the hypocrites who prayed on the street corners and in the synagogues in order to be seen by others. They were promoting themselves. They were promoting their piety. They wanted to let other people know how faithful they were. People self-promoted then and they self-promote now. But Jesus was not interested in any of it. Jesus actually deserved to be known, didn't he? He deserved to be known by everyone for who he was and what he did. But he wanted everyone to keep quiet. He didn't want anyone to know about him so that he could carry on his ministry unhindered. Well, if Jesus' unwillingness to quarrel with the Pharisees showed his gentleness, verse 20 displays it even more. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. Charles Spurgeon considered the terms bruised reed and and smoldering wick to refer primarily to the Pharisees. And he says, Jesus, he didn't try to break them down as he could have and as he was justified in doing. Jesus did not try to mow them down or snuff them out as he certainly had a right to do. By their unbelief, by their persistent, dogged unbelief, the Pharisees would bring judgment crashing down on their own heads. Jesus did not have to do it himself. But Jesus' gentleness with the Pharisees proves that he's going to be gentle with other people. He's going to be gentle with other bruised reeds. If Jesus is gentle with the Pharisees, if Jesus does not strike out at the Pharisees, and he's gentle by being passive toward them, how much more gentle will he be with those who repent and believe? This is what Matthew is wanting you to see here. How much more gentle will he be? As Spurgeon goes on to say, the feeblest are not disdained by our Lord Jesus. Though apparently useless as a bruised reed, or even actually offensive as a smoking flax, he is gentle and exercises no harsh severity. He longs to bind up the broken reed and fan the smoking flax into flaming life. Jesus truly is what he was accused of being back in chapter 11, verse 19. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And as our friend, he binds us. 
as our friend. He fans into flame that smoldering spark in our hearts. He does not condemn us. He does not tear us down. As he sees repentance and faith, he builds it up in our hearts and causes us to grow. Every one of us, you and I, we are bruised because of sin. As you walk through the doors this morning, you're carrying bruises. And many of you feel broken down. And many of you are struggling. Some of you have walked with Christ for years and years and years. And you feel uh, the flame that you once had sort of dying down into a, a low-burning ember. But God's word here is telling you that Jesus will not put you out. He will not extinguish your hope. He will not break you apart. He will not throw you into the fire as, as a farmer throws chaff into the furnace. He will bind you up. He will bring healing to your bones. He will bring healing to your soul. And the only requirement is faith and repentance. This is the promise that we have in this passage. And on top of all this, on top of this promise that Jesus will take care of you, Jesus is patient with you. As he says in chapter 11, verse 29, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's patient. He gives you rest. He gives you relief from the burdens that you carry. He takes them off. The great burden that we all wish to carry because of that, that inner Pharisee in our hearts. Jesus takes it away. And what does he replace it with? What is his burden? Well, he says it is easy. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. He does not give us more than we can bear. Well, the problem with most self-promoters, and all of us, I think, fit into that category. The problem with most self-promoters is that they're all smoke and mirrors. Their greatness is an illusion that they have contrived. And we're all very good at contriving illusions. We're all very good at making ourselves look really good on the outside. When inside we are a, a barely smoldering wick. But Jesus truly was great. Jesus truly was worthy of promotion. But he did not promote himself at all. Jesus always put the interest of others before his own. And most significantly he did this by dying for you and for me on the cross. He died in our place. He put the interests of you and me before himself because of his great love for us. Well, this leads directly into the Gentiles' hope. Matthew's gospel emphasizes Christ's mission to the Gentiles more than any other gospel. He makes a special mention in Jesus' genealogy of the Gentile ancestors of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, he wants us to see very early on the purpose that God has in mind. He is here to save the nations. 
Matthew is the only gospel to mention the visit of the Gentile Magi. And in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus specifically commands his people to make disciples of all nations. The same word translated Gentiles here in our passage. Verse 18 says that the servant will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This proclamation is the prophetic activity of Jesus. As Jesus went around as an itinerant minister in the area around Galilee, he proclaimed God's justice to the Gentiles. God's plan from all eternity has been for sinners of every nation to come to faith in Christ, to be conformed to the image and the likeness of Christ. And this happens through the proclamation of God's justice. Well, what is justice? Commentator uh, William Hendrickson says this, Justice is that which is right in harmony with the will of God, that sinners repent, believe in the Savior, and find salvation in Him, and out of gratitude live to the glory of their benefactor. So what is this proclamation of justice? In a nutshell, this proclamation of justice is the gospel, isn't it? God wants you to be right with him. He wants you to be justified in his sight. And the way that this is done is by repentance and faith. When God's justice is proclaimed, sinners repent and believe in him. Well, verse 20 continues this theme that Matthew has introduced in verse 18. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, you'll remember that Gentiles in Jesus' day were not well regarded. The land of the Jews was under Gentile occupation. The Roman army had its footprints all over Israel. They had been trampling about For years, even at the temple, the place where God met his people, the Gentiles were segregated away from the Jews. They could not enter the Jewish court of the temple on pain of death, signs around outside of the Jewish court said. But in Christ Jesus, these barriers of race and ethnicity and nationality are torn down. In Christ Jesus... The curtain is ripped in half. That wall of separation, which kept even the Jews out of the Holy of Holies, has been torn down, and Gentiles, with faith in Jesus Christ, can rush in and meet with God face to face. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. The Jews had been under Gentile occupation for centuries. First it was the Babylonians, then it was the Greeks, then it was the Romans. The Gentiles had streamed into Israel. The Gentiles were hated by the Jews. The last thing a Jewish person of that day would have wanted to do was welcome a Gentile into the temple. Welcome a Gentile into the worship of their God. But this is exactly what Isaiah 42 and what Matthew chapter 12 is saying. 
That God now, he welcomes these foreigners into his midst. And how does he do it? How is this done? It's done through Christ Jesus. It's done by his work on the cross. It's done by his life of obedience. And it is done when sinful people place their faith in him. God's plan from before the foundation of the world was to welcome these people, people like you and me. Very few of us here can claim a a Jewish ancestry. But even if we could, it's not enough. But God's plan has always been to welcome people like you and me into his worship, into his presence, into his family. Paul will go on to say in Galatians chapter 4 that we can now call upon God the Father as our Father. That we can cry out, Abba, Father. And we have this privilege because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Well, here is the problem. Sin is universal among mankind. And sin leaves us bruised and it leaves us broken. It leaves us smoldering. But the solution for sin was not limited only to uh, one race. It wasn't limited to only one group of people. God promised in Genesis that he would make Abraham's offspring a blessing to all nations. And Jesus, as the preeminent offspring of Abraham, Jesus, as the perfect offspring of Abraham, has blessed every nation. Jesus came... As Matthew said back in chapter 1 of this gospel, Jesus came to save his people from their sin. And his people includes sinners from every tongue and every tribe. Sinners just like you and me. And he invites each of us to embrace him in faith and in turn to be embraced by the Heavenly Father. Embrace him now. And he is faithful to embrace you. Let us come before him in prayer.